you're meeting minimum requirements in terms of contrast. So what is the color of the text and what's the color of the background? Is there enough contrast there for someone with a visual impairment? Thanks for tuning in to Nodes of Design. To help support our mission spread knowledge, we have a very special guest on today's episode. Let's welcome Sharif Mata, who is a producer and director turned into a UX designer and also a UX mentor at General Assembly. Sharif had worked with clients like Marriott, NBC Universal, Chase, Olay, Ford, and Gartner, sharing his wide array of industrial experience. On today's episode, Sharif and I had a great conversation on how to build accessible products, what exactly is accessibility standards that one must follow to build products that are universal for all. Also, we focused on the ethics side of design and how being a designer, it's your duty to design some ethical products while avoiding the dark UX pattern. So stay tuned and happy designing everyone. Hi, Sheriff. Welcome to Nodes of Design. Hi, thanks for having me. Sheriff, how's your day going? It's good. It's good. Uh, timing wise, we're kind of uh, in the United States. We're in the middle of um, starting to loosen up some of the shutdowns and, and lockdowns based on the, the pandemic. And so I think people are still very cautious and wondering what's going to happen with remote work and everything that's going on right now. I think, you know, things are as good as they can be in these times. And, and I'm, I'm really hopeful and positive. That's great, Sheriff. And thank you so much for joining our Mission Spread Knowledge. Absolutely. And I think this is an awesome podcast. And so I'm, I'm super excited to talk. So Sheriff, if you could give a brief about you to our audience. Sure. I actually grew up in Hawaii, a small island. I was always sort of interested and obsessed with art and technology. And so went to university in uh, Silicon Valley, um, started working in sort of marketing for some big tech companies in the security space and in other areas. And then I got into filmmaking and I started uh, producing a lot of uh, films and marketing materials. And more and more, I started doing post-production and animation and I started getting sort of UI, UX jobs. And so I started asking questions about what is this UI, UX? How do you actually make better products and services? And uh, I sort of filled out a lot of my UX knowledge, um, worked at a bunch of different companies, large entertainment companies, um, I've worked in-house on product teams, a bunch of startups. Yeah, so it got to the point where I, I, I you know, actually started teaching at, at GA and, and other courses and started doing workshops with a lot of Fortune 500 companies, basically implementing design thinking and, and different strategies for growing uh, product teams. Thank you so much, uh, Sherry, for your brief intro. So what is your journey into design? How did you start into this career? And what are your tips that you want to give to the younger audience now? Yeah, this is a really important one. I think people's story helps shape their sort of interest and passion, especially in something that requires both sort of soft skills and technical expertise. Um, you need a story that really helps sort of drive you and motivate you to continue and work hard even when things are getting difficult. So from a young age, I actually, um, I struggled in school. I, um, I had uh, dyslexia. And for the longest time, I was really struggling with reading and keeping up. Um, with materials. And it was only until I started getting into technology and computers and there was like little games that I used um, that wasn't being taught in school or I didn't have access to the type of uh, education that I needed. And so through technology, I was able to learn and, and sort of end up loving reading. And I, I today, you know, reading is, is a passion of mine. And so 
this passion for technology kind of came from that really young age and those experiences. Yeah, later, I, like I said, you know, I got into filmmaking and I started getting jobs in terms of like UI and animation and very being very sort of technical and doing a lot of visual design. But the more that I realized that the artistic or the visual side of it wasn't as important or powerful as sort of defining your problem and getting the research, um, I started becoming more and more passionate about the psychology of design, the science of design, um, how do you measure good design, and asking those types of questions, uh, making products that actually solve problems instead of just look good or feel good. That's kind of my background, and that's how I got really passionate about design is, is how do you actually make things that solve problems and help people as opposed to you know vanity metrics or aesthetics purely on its own, which are obviously super important. That's great, Sharif. So, but what are the tips that you want to suggest to young creatives now? A big one is find your story, find that thing in background, your experience you get excited about. Like, what do you do? What do you think about when you're not told to think about that or doing it for homework? Right? Pursue that and and try different ways of trying those things out and and fail a bunch. I think that motivation factor is kind of pursue those things regardless of whether you think there's some sort of financial or career behind it. So much, especially these days of, of what you see careers and, and people's, some of the biggest growth in our economy is in places where people have sort of pursued their passion regardless of opportunities or jobs or financial gain. Um, and they ended up being this whole new creative or fun space um, that ended up being, you know, actually great for their career. Um, but I think it comes from a truer place and, and then it, it also sustains you over longer periods of time. Thank you so much, Arif. So on today's topic, we are going to discuss on accessibility and ethics as we discussed. So what is accessibility and why is it essential to make products accessible to everyone? It's it's so critical. And, and you know, so much of some of this conversation seems like a side story or, you know, one part of something. Um, to me, it's it's so central and it's core to what the value of design can do, and especially the value of design within a company or organization. You have basically accessibility, usability, inclusion, right? You have these pillars. You know, we're very familiar as designers, as UX, UI designers, with usability, right? We do prioritize testing. We think about the user. We make sure that tools and designs that we use can actually be used by the people that we intend. And accessibility is a core part of that. It basically considers the those users who need assistive uh, help or have some form of a disability. And this is a lot uh, more common than people think, right? Um, it's not you know, a tiny minority of the population. Um, we're talking about large percentages of the population many of which don't necessarily know that they have accessibility needs. Not only that, but most tools and resources and strategies that we use to increase accessibility of websites, apps, the tools that we're designing actually help everyone. Uh, and I've got a bunch of great examples of that where if you focus on someone with an accessibility need, for example, um, hard of hearing or vision impairment, the strategies that make that work for those folks end up helping everyone in making the designs both aesthetically, just in terms of solving a problem, um, they do them more innovatively and um, end up reaching more people. Uh, and they help people in a variety of different situations. Yeah. So, uh, you know, if you think about accessibility specifically, right? So there are some legal sort of frameworks around your website or your app um, or your tool accessible to many people. And there's actually been several lawsuits. So in the United States, in the United States, we have certain laws saying that businesses, um, if you're serving the public, you need to you need to make your services, your your business, your organization 
and accessible to everyone, right? So if you had a store, you had a physical store and um, a whole, a large number of people couldn't access your store, that would be a big problem, right? And so there's actually been several lawsuits where people have actually been able to sue companies, huge companies like Netflix and a bunch of other companies for not being accessible to everyone. And these are actually really important lawsuits. I know some people can be cynical about some of these lawsuits. Not everyone is going to be a positive thing. But there are examples where you've had, um, whether it's a, a pizza website, being able to order pizza, or something more critical like being able to apply for a job or being able to access resources or healthcare. These, th- these types of services and tools need to be accessible for everyone. Some of these lawsuits and some of these guidelines and some of these uh, resources are able to actually help companies, large and small, be able to be more considerate and conscious of making sure that their uh, services are available to everyone. Especially these smaller to mid-sized companies, they, they don't have huge budgets, they don't have a ton of resources, so they don't know necessarily how to navigate these things. And so it's really important that there's clear guidelines available for everyone um, in order to how to make your website um, accessible. Uh, and it actually increases business. And, it, it, and like I said, when you, when you work on accessibility for the folks who need it, you end up helping everyone and, and making your site just more usable and, and friendly to um, all of your customers and all of your users. And, and, and there's countless examples where businesses have grown dramatically. So you've got, in the global context, a lot of that guidance that I was talking about comes from the Web Content Accessibility Guidelines, WCHD. Yeah, and so they, they basically, they come out with a lot of guidelines. They even have a bunch of tools that you can, uh, easy free tools to use that you can basically put your your site or your tool or whatever you're designing in Sketch and Figma and a lot of the design tools that we're using. And you can make sure that, for example, you're meeting minimum requirements in terms of contrast. So what is the color of the text and what's the color of the background? Is there enough contrast there for someone with a visual impairment to actually see and make that out? And so I mentioned that I have dyslexia. One of the things that's a really strong design uh, component is making sure that you have enough sort of visual hierarchy both with your text, but also with your visuals. When you think about visual hierarchy, what's important, what's less important? How do we make this page simple? How do we declutter and organize the information in a more sort of chunked, easy to understand way? Again, that helps people with disabilities, people with visual impairments, um, also people with different neurological uh, differences, but it also helps everyone, right? When you have, when you look at a page, regardless of your background or your needs, and there's a ton of visual hierarchy, you have very large, clear titles, right? That are succinct. You have copy, you have clear separation between body and the titles. Um, you have a lot of sense of prioritization in terms of what's important, what's not on the page. These are things that both look aesthetically good and they're very scannable and learnable. Again, This helps everyone. So accessibility is one of those superpowers that designers need to tap into to help make their designs just so much more effective. Thank you so much, Sheriff, for giving us such great insights. So on top of this, I would like to add, there's this framework called as POUR, P-O-U-R framework, using which you can always make some great accessible designs that is perceivable, operable, and understandable and robust. So if if your system does consider all these four things, then obviously it's an accessible product that you are making for everyone. Absolutely, right? And and the key to that is you have all different kinds of accessibility needs. By having frameworks like that, which is super effective, um, you're able to make sure that you're sort of checking the boxes in terms of making sure that 
you're actually hitting on the primary modes of communication and uh, meeting those needs for the different types of accessibility needs. One of the one of the things that I've found in my career is in different environments is, and it's been hard, right? This is a learning curve for everyone. You you have to use these simple strategies um, that you can actually make sure that you're touching these bases because this obviously this can get fairly complex. And so implementing those types of strategies where it's very bite-sized and accessible, where you can actually go through a checklist and make sure that things are, are meeting those needs is, has been really helpful for me as I work at, you know, huge entertainment companies or with sort of hospitality clients that um, have to serve millions of people and they have to be sort of accessible. And so another strategy that I use is making sure that the personas that we're using in design, right? So we have personas backed by research. We use these personas to help design, right? And so what are their needs? What's their background? What are their preferences? But also what can they do? What can't they do? What's their content? And so a lot of times it can be really helpful to uh, make sure that users, your representative users, potentially have an accessibility need, right? Or a, a physical or mental disability. And for designing for them, those types of constraints are really powerful tools in actually creating innovative solutions. And so if it works for that user, it's going to work for um, a lot of these other users too. And so that means bringing in when you do tests, you do some usability tests, whether you're doing guerrilla testing where you just put in front of a few friends or you know, have a, a, a small number of people use the your prototype. Or if it's a more formal sort of, you've screened a lot of users and you're doing a more formal research, make sure that you um, actually have um, users' accessibility needs or, or a disability. And seeing that for yourself is going to help you and your team sort of empathize there and understand, right, what are the ways that, that folks like this need uh, in order to access these tools, how can we make this work for everyone and not just a subset of users that we think we primarily think about? Or how do we not exclude really key parts of the population that really, you know, uses the internet, uses these services more and more, um, and it's only growing? Thank you so much, Sheriff. Totally agree with you on that. Let's move to the ethics side now. What are the ethics in design and why are they so fundamentally important in designing solutions? Yeah, the, the ethics is always a tricky a thing to bring up, right? Especially in the context of business. And as designers, we're, we're largely working for businesses who are looking to make a profit. They're looking to grow. A big part of that is prioritizing what's important to them and these companies, right? Business framework of thinking. And oftentimes ethics is like politics. Is It becomes sort of a landmine, right? And people have different ethics, different points of view here. And so sometimes those topics are avoided. The problem with that is whether we like it or not, the businesses that are grown, right, these platforms, um, whether it's YouTube, Facebook, Google, or a lot of the other big tools and services, these are designed and they impact the way we live and interact with each other, right? And so that's fundamentally ethical questions are going to arise in the way in we, which we communicate, right? And so, and the way in which it impacts our politics, the way that it impacts our intimate uh, relationships, our relationships with our families and friends, right? And so to ignore ethics in, in conversation in these businesses, the, the companies that we're designing for, we're actually um, being sort of negligent in our responsibility to actually consider the impact of our designs and our tools on ethics and on our relationships with people. So first of all, should we have those conversations? Is ethics core to design? And I think the answer is yes, right? Whether we like it or not, the things, the decisions that we're making in the design room 
are having impacts on people's relationships. So that's the first thing is, is it's a part of our responsibility to consider these things. How do we talk about these things effectively? I think the most effective ways to talk about them are oftentimes in the language of the person that we're talking to. So if, if we're in the context of business, think about it in terms of business, right? Use the language that speaks to the person. It's the same thing that you do when, as a designer if we're talking to a developer versus someone in marketing. Right? We want to be understood and we want to be conscious of where they're coming from. And so think about the context of the person that we're talking to. And we can ask, if this happens, what if this happens? Right. So that's very practical examples of um, if we make this design decision um, or if we hide this feature or functionality, are we potentially causing a, a, an issue for this user Right? These are the specific things that may happen. And there's some obvious, really silly examples that are really common that we obviously know in terms of like dark UX, right? This is a popular term that has sort of crept into the mainstream. And sadly, it's a lot of times it's the way that people are introduced to UX, which is ironic because UX was really founded on on making uh, people's lives better and being conscious and empathetic. Um, and ironically, dark UX is sort of how people are like, oh, what's UX? I've heard of dark UX. And <laughs> um, but right in example of dark UX is I want to cancel my subscription to this service and the button or the feature or the, um, the user flow to access the simple canceling of this service is hidden behind something or you have to talk to a human being, customer support, or they give you a primary CTA when you're trying to cancel the subscription that says, I changed my mind. I want to continue. We'll give you a discount. I don't want a discount. I just want to cancel. Right. And so that's a small example, but that's, that involves ethics, right? You're manipulating someone in order to get a short-term gain in profit. And what we find if we look at companies like large companies like Apple, Google, and companies that are, are doing really successful, um, positive things with design and growth um, and innovation, they don't think about short-term ways of benefiting from their users or their customers. What they think about is what's the lifetime value of having a loyal person be trusting of our brand, of our company, of our tools, who believes in and, and can use a lot of our tools and technology. That's a, a much more important conversation to have because it actually benefits the company over the life of the company when you're talking about lifetime value of a customer, right? And then you're thinking about the relationship. And if you had a relationship with a close friend and you had an opportunity to get a, a quick buck off your friend, you wouldn't do that because you know that this is a lifetime friendship that That's a short-term gain is, is absurd to think about, I'm going to make a quick buck off a friend. That's not why I'm in this relationship with this person. And there's so much more value that this person ha is, brings to me as a part of my life over the course of my life than me making a few dollars in the short term. And so if we start thinking about uh, our customers and the people that we're trying to improve their lives more as um, a relationship over the course of uh, the life of that relationship, then you're going to start asking different questions and having different ethical conversations. How do we maximize and the potential of this person? How do we give this person more access to tools and features? How do we make it super easy to cancel or stop paying if they, if they temporarily don't have the cash or the money to use these tools? How do we make it super easy to start up again if they need that? Then what you're doing is you're building trust and you're thinking about brand. And it's such a more powerful conversation. So I think in ethics, again, 
how do we talk about these things in ways that make more sense to the business, but also are grounded in practical, real examples where we can actually do solutions that solve problems um, and build relationships with our customers. Thank you so much, Sherry, for explaining ethics in such great real-time examples. I thoroughly enjoyed it. <laughs> so on a concluding note, do you want to suggest any three reads to our listeners? Yeah, sure. Um, well, one of the things I love about design is hearing about where people in design come from, right? Their backgrounds. And, um, you know, I taught design for a little while. And um, many of my students were waiters or came from acting or different places. Leveraging their experiences of the background, it brought such an awesome perspective, right, um, to design because they have these experiences that are unique and amazing. It's not always just like visual design or something along those lines. It's something really unique or interesting, whether it's sales or whatever it is. Um, and so similarly with books, I, I like to recommend things that are just either interesting to me or um, in a different realm or department or industry because I, I, I love bringing in those different um, subjects and seeing how it can enrich and enliven the design space. So it's not literally design. One of the, those subjects is sort of psychology, obviously super important to design, um, but also just in terms of relationships and um, understanding ourselves better and our motivations. So Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman, incredible book, and, and he's one of the most respected people in, in the field of behavioral economics. And so understanding why people do what they do, how they think, some of our biases, some of our misconceptions. So uh, that's a really powerful book. One of the other books is um, The Best Interface is No Interface by Golden Krishna. And he's basically, um, it's a very, it's sort of a bit of a poetic book, but he he's sort of frustrated by this obsession with screens. And as designers, you know, we understand this. And most of the time when we're thinking about building things, it's within the box or the framework of a screen, right? It's, it's an app or it's a website. But design and UX and research applies across technologies and platforms and devices, right? So when we get into voice design, when we get into these other areas of innovation and technology, yeah, virtual reality, AR, right? All these things, design applies, right? Design is, is maybe even more important than ever in those spaces. But when we're in this box of when we say we're going to build a tool, instantly we think of our screen and we start designing things in a screen. It's very limiting. Um, and it actually avoids a lot of the innovations that we can actually leverage as designers moving. That book basically is both talking about how we can think outside of the screen, but also if we are, if we are designing screens, how do we focus on doing a few things really well? What is the philosophy? How do we approach um, things that get out of people's way, right? So the idea of actually not trying to hack people into using our screens as much as possible and scrolling infinitely, but how do we let someone quickly look at their screen, maybe get a, a task done as quickly as possible, they're on their way to the airport, and then put their phone away, right? Our goal as designers in some cases should be how do we have the person look at the screen as, in as little time as possible, right? Um, so critical and, and a really uh, beautiful written, written book. And then the last one is kind of, um, uh, it's called Against Empathy, which to a designer is like, what? I, but we're trying to be empathetic. What do I do? <laughs> um, and it's, it's just an interesting, and obviously, the, the, you know, there's a balance to this conversation, but there is a discussion happening around um, empathy and, and some of its limitations, right? As designers, we want to be able to empathize with people so that we can kind of 
put ourselves in their shoes, hopefully understand what's difficult, what are their pain points so that we can then design a solution. We can kind of fix their problem. But this book sort of talks about some of the limitations of that, right? And, and we, we can relate to this on, the, on this extent of if we've gone through a very traumatic experience or had a difficult time with something and someone comes up to us and hears what happened and then says, I get it. I fully understand. Let me solve your problem. You don't necessarily feel heard. And, and, and that's, not, that's obviously not the best way to connect with people. To that extent, it's, it's not always effective. But even further, if, if we're replacing people, including people from diverse backgrounds with a set of really important experiences, and we're replacing that and just saying, we're empathizing with those people, but we're not including them in the process, right? We're not actually having them be designers. We're not actually having people with diverse backgrounds, diverse experiences, different perspectives than my own. If we're not including them in the conversation, I just need to empathize with them and then I have them covered. I don't need to think about them anymore. Empathy can actually be pretty harmful. So this is an interesting book where they explore all kinds of uh, important ethical questions. And it's so against empathy, um, it's the case for uh, rational compassion. Um, and it's by Paul Bloom. Thank you so much, Sheriff. It was wonderful hosting you. Thank you for having me. I had, I had so much fun. Um, and if, if people really want to uh, learn more, connect, I'm, I'm happy to uh, answer any questions or um, just have a conversation and go a little bit more in depth about um, accessibility, design, how important it is so that we can kind of share this message. I think every designer's responsibility is to consider accessibility. I think it's foundational to you know, this practice in UX and UI, and it's only getting more important. Thank you. Absolutely. Keep up the great work. Thank you.